you have your Bible today, turn please to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. We're talking about the courage to stand strong. What's your hallmark of courage? What is the one thing that if, if you just think of courage, uh, that's what you would think of? Would you think of somebody in a foxhole? Would you think of somebody uh, maybe, uh, for me, the, the epitome of courage, I'd be, I guess, would be to stand at the door of a perfectly good plane and to jump out. Whether you have a parachute or not, that just does not, that's either courage or stupidity. I haven't figured out which one, but to skydive just doesn't seem like uh, something that I want to do. So it seems very courageous. I ran across a true story, uh, a master sergeant, a, a radio operator, a radio mechanic by the name of, of uh, Irwin, Irwin Red, uh, Henry Irwin. Master Sergeant Irwin, or Red as his friends all know him, in World War II was this guy who got washed out because he wasn't a good enough pilot, but, but he was always just this guy that was always there for his friends. And on April 12, 1945, Red Irwin was serving as the radio operator in this plane that was going over Japan. They were going to go bomb a, a, a munitions plant in a super fortress, a B-29 super fortress called the city of Los Angeles. And as they were coming over, his job, in addition to being, being the radio operator, the navigator had gone up to the top turret to try to get some, uh, some bearings, and they were coming in on a low-level run, and they were going to drop phosphorus bombs, phosphorus markers, so that the rest of the squadron coming behind could find this munitions plant 120 miles north of Tokyo. And when they came in over the coast, they were not expecting it, but there was heavy anti-aircraft fire, and the pilot said, go ahead and drop the markers. We're on the mark. The navigator called and said, we're on, and they dropped, he began to drop the markers. The first one went down the chute without a problem. You pull the fuse, you drop the phosphorus uh, marker down there, and the second one, he pulled the fuse, and it's supposed to delay for 10 seconds. It got about one second down the chute, and the phosphorus bomb went off, and it blew back up the chute into his face, 1,100 degrees burning hot completely just burned his nose and his ear off. He lost all sight immediately, and it filled the whole fuselage of the plane with smoke, and the pilot knew that he would not be able to get back. The pilot's name is Captain George Simmerall. The pilot opened his windows, and he began screaming, help, help, and they went into a dive. They couldn't figure out what was going on. They thought the plane had been hit, and so the pilot was diving to try to put the fire out, but the more that he dove and the faster he went, the more the smoke just filled the plane. And Red realized that something horrible was going to happen. The bomb had dropped onto the floor, and he realized that if he didn't do something, the plane, it would burn through the fuselage into the bombs, because after they had done that, they were to come back up and bomb uh, along with the others. So he grabbed this bomb 1,100 degrees with his hand, his bare hand, and he made his way up to the front. He thought, if I could just get it out the pilot's window. But as he was going, he realized the navigator had left the tray table down, his table, and he could not get by. So he put the bomb under his arm, burning all the way to his ribs and to the inside bone of his arm, while he put with his other arm, the best he could, put this thing up, got by, came up to the pilot and said, pardon me, sir, and threw the bomb out the window and collapsed on the floor. Red Irwin was... Immediately, uh, they, they pulled the plane out 300 feet above the water. They returned to Iwo Jima. They gave him first aid on the way, he, way back. He never lost consciousness. But every time they would try to, to douse the flames, if they let the, the, the phosphorus get any air to it, it would ignite again. And it, he was just in this excruciating pain. 
when he got back, Major General Curtis LeMay and Brigadier General Loris Norstad put him in for Medal of Honor. It's the fastest anyone's ever been approved for it. In five hours, they came to his hospital bed. They believed that if they didn't do it that quickly, that he would never be able to receive it alive. And Red Irwin received the Medal of Honor, the highest medal that could be given. Red decided he wasn't done. He had a strong faith in Jesus Christ, and he prayed that God would save him and that God would heal him. Red Irwin, over the next 30 months, had 41 surgeries. He regained some limited sight. He had massive surgeries for his face. He got the use of one arm, his left hand. He never could use his right hand again. For 37 years, he was the benefit counselor at the Veterans Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama, and he told his story. By the way, by the time he was all said and done, Red Irwin received 21 medals for what he had done on that day. That's courage. And you say, well, Pastor, I'm never going to be in a plane with a phosphorus bomb that blows back in my face. No, but maybe you're the mom uh, that is totally dedicated to the, the needs of a handicapped child or just a regular child. And every day you have the courage to get up and face that. Maybe you have gone to the doctor and he says the word cancer and, and he talks about chemo and radiation and you've gone through that. I'm wearing pink today. It's October. I figure if the NFL guys can do it, we can do it in church too, right? And, and we can stand in the face and the courage of those who have faced cancer, and, and they go through it. And maybe you're the one that the doctor came and said, we've tried everything, and, and there's nothing left to do, and you will not make it. We have nothing else to do to treat you. And you have the courage to get up day after day, and we have some here in our congregation like that. They're my heroes. Philippians 4, 12, and 13 says this. The courage is all about, I know what it is to be in need. Paul is writing from prison, and he has the courage to write. I know what it is to have plenty. I've, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That's where we get our courage. And the Bible teaches us, and Acts 14 specifically teaches us, that if we want to have courage, come to him for strength. Come to him to find that courage to stand strong. Look at Acts chapter 14. We're going to look at the first 18 verses. It's a powerful chapter. I won't begin to, to touch on everything that I'd love to talk about today, but look at this. And, and, and what we're really looking at is the question, do I have the courage to speak for Christ? It begins with the words that come out of our mouth, the courage that, that God can give us to speak. Look at what happens, Acts 14.1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish, temp, uh, Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe get that wording, they refused to believe, stirred up the Gentiles, and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a, a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and, and they fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. Look at verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. 
Paul is sometimes the master of overstatement. What does he say? He's crippled in his feet. He was lame from birth, had never walked. What is he trying to tell us? This guy could not get up, never had been able to. Verse 9, he listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked at him, uh, looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At man, at, at that, the man crawled up, barely able to get on his feet. Is that what it says? No. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. He had never walked before in his life. And he walked. Verse 11, when the crowd saw that Paul, what, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them, that is to Paul and Barnabas. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes, typical Jewish sign of, of blasphemy, of, of mourning, of, of, of terrible distress. They tore their clothes and rushed out into this crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Let's, let's take a look at that for a minute. Let's break it down just a little bit. Do I have the courage to speak? You, you see, God empowers us to speak effectively. That's the first thing that we need to get to, from this. God will give me the power to speak, and not just to speak, but to speak effectively. Paul and Barnabas go to Iconium. We don't even know where this city is. It's Turkey's seventh largest city today. It, it is known as Konya, and it has over one million people living there. It is on a strategic trade route uh, in, in the middle of the, of the, uh, of the country. So they had a plan. What was their plan? Their plan was to go to strategic urban centers. Their plan was to go to, to trade centers that impacted the region. Their plan was to go to some place that they could make a difference. Their plan was to talk to somebody that might impact someone else. We've talked about that already today. You don't always know who that is, but you should have a plan somehow to impact someone for Jesus Christ. But they also had a pattern. You notice it says, as, as, as usual, they went into the Jewish synagogue. They came first to preach grace to the Jews. They came to tell them that there was a salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And how effective was it? It says, a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. The Greek words there, polyplethos. It's the only time used in the book of Acts. Polyplethos. There was this huge number that came to Jesus Christ. Now, what's shocking about that? You remember on the day of Pentecost, there were just a few people saved, right? No, there were 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost. It, they didn't talk about polyplethos. There was not a great number. Later, it says there were 5,000 added to the church. And still, Luke did not use the term polyplethos. I don't know if it's a percentage or what, but this huge ingathering came in Iconium. They had this huge impact. How can we speak effectively? Well, what's your plan? 
Oh, what do you mean? You know, I'm not a missionary. Well, what's your plan? Who are you going to sit next to at work? Who are you going to rub shoulders with this week? Who are you going to see when you, when you go out into the neighborhood? Who are you going to know when you go to fill up with gas? Who are you going to get to know for Jesus Christ? What is your plan to impact the world with Jesus Christ? And you say, well, you know, Pastor, that's just not my thing. If we don't have a plan, we don't have a pattern, how are we going to reach our world for Christ? We need a pattern to tell others about him. And we need to eliminate excuses. Paul and Barnabas could have come in there and they could have said, wait a second, this is, not my, this is not my bag. This is not my place. This is not my people. I don't know how I'm going to reach them. But they didn't do that. Are you good at making excuses? We come from a long line of people who are really good at excuses. I love Moses' excuses. Moses' excuses in, in Exodus 4. What if they don't believe me or listen, he says to God. God has just said, go, I'm going to make you the head of Israel. And he says, what if they don't listen? And then he says, I'm not eloquent. And what does God reply in Exodus 4? The Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Do you see the humor in that? Moses, you say you can't speak? Who made your mouth? Then he says a little later, now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. God can put the words in our mouth. We've seen that in the men's breakfast. We have different people who get up and give testimonies and give devotions. And we've seen some men who when they get up, they're standing like this. We let them put their notes down so that their hands won't tremble. These are the same guys that can do all kinds of in incredible things, but when they're asked to stand in front of a crowd and just give the, a testimony of what Jesus has done, they're terrified. I hear the same thing happened yesterday. I heard a great testimony from Carrie Nance about what God has done to help her in her fear and the way God has used her. God empowers us. John 14, 6 says, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and remind you of those things. God empowers us to speak effectively. Number two, God encourages us to speak boldly. Not just effectively, but boldly. It says the Jews who refuse to believe poison, kakao, again, the same word that's used of Herod when he takes Peter and James, kills James, and he brings Peter and he says, I'm going to execute him the next day. It's the same word about Herod's intent. He was going to kill. The poison means to, to, take, to sake, suck the life out of that person. They were trying to suck the life. They were trying to kill that person. And they were trying to kill their minds. They made a conscious choice against God. They did all they could to make Paul and Barnabas miserable. Have you ever had somebody like that? If you begin to speak effectively for Jesus Christ, there will be a person who will come in your life that they will be the most obnoxious wart. Can we say obnoxious wart? Okay, we said it. They will be the most obnoxious wart in your life. They will appear and they will be there every time you turn around. John Wesley, one of the great pastors of all time, one of the great preachers of all time, had this man that was his mortal enemy. He hated John Wesley. John Wesley showed him love, and the man, the more he showed him love, the more this man hated him. And one night, as John Wesley was in his carriage, and it was pouring rain, and they met on this narrow road. Now, if each of them had moved over a little bit, they could just squeeze by on the road. But when the man saw that it was John Wesley in his carriage, he took the middle of the road, and he said to John Wesley, John Wesley, move. And John Wesley said, my brother, can't we just get along? Can't we just squeak by? And the man said, John Wesley, you are a fool. Move. 
So John Wesley got out, led his horse into the ditch with his carriage, not knowing if he could get out. And as this man, this, this man who hated John Wesley went by, he said, I never pull aside for fools. And John Wesley replied, I always do. <laughs> you see, we don't have to be a doormat. John Wesley showed love to him, but as he was going by, he also spoke boldly to him. He says, listen, there's a time to speak the truth. You remember last week in, in chapter 13, Paul to Elimus. Elimus, when he began to speak, Paul called him down. In fact, called down God's wrath on him so that the man was blind for a few days. Jesus in, in the New Testament, when the Pharisees, time after time after time, he showed him love, he showed him grace, but there finally came a time in Matthew 23 when he says, whoa, you guys are open graves. Everything you teach is hypocrisy, and he called them on that. You say, well, pastor, what about Proverbs 15:1, where it says, a gentle answer turns away wrath? I think in a relationship, in a close relationship, that's true. But sometimes we need to speak the truth. Yes, speak it in love. We should not be caustic. But we are to speak the truth in love. I love that Daniel did that. Daniel is this captive in the Babylonian, captive, in, in Babylonian uh, empire. And as he goes into this captivity, he does not cease to, to speak boldly. And you remember the story of Daniel Finally, later in his life, and he's put into the lion's den because he, he's prayed regularly, and it's this whole, it's this gotcha moment. And these guys put this whole thing up just so that Daniel would be killed, and he's put in the lion's den. And the next morning, the king comes down, and he calls down, Daniel, Daniel, you're still down there. And look at what Daniel says in Daniel 6.22. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. That's God's sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. That's pretty bold speech, isn't it? It's even bolder when you realize in the next verse it says, After Daniel spoke these words, they pulled him from the pit. Daniel's still standing there with lions around him. And he's saying something that could tick off this king so that the king says, okay, you think you're so perfect, I'll just leave you down there for a couple of weeks. But it doesn't happen that way because he spoke boldly and the king respected him and pulled him from the pit. Number three, God enables us to speak of grace. Not only does he empower us to speak effectively, encourage us to speak boldly, but he enables us to speak of grace. It says that God confirmed their message the Lord confirmed their message of his grace. How? By enabling them to do miracles. What's the message of grace? The message of grace is that we all deserve, we, because of what we have done, the way we've lived, the thoughts that we've had, the, the, the things that are in our heart, all of us to really deserve to, to spend eternity in hell. God's given us forgiveness. He offers us hope. He sent his son to die on the cross to pay for each of us. And then he gives that as a free gift. We don't deserve it. It is grace. It's something that we did not earn. And when they began to speak this, it says that the Jews stirred up the Gentiles. Does that strike you as a little strange? The Jews hated the Gentiles. The Jews called the Gentiles dogs. Now, not like our dogs. Our dogs are not really dogs. They're humans. They just don't realize it. 
I mean, when we eat, our dogs eat. When we sleep, our dogs sleep. The, the dogs really are spoiled rotten is what they are. We love our dogs, and we don't treat them like dogs. I mean, maybe I should be ashamed of that. I noticed the other day when we went through the line, we get little treats for them, and I noticed it had words like porterhouse and, and sirloin on the little Caesars, you know, little Caesars things, the little food. And I said to Kathy, I haven't had a porterhouse in a long time. My dog gets it like every 10 days. What's wrong with this picture? So I tasted theirs. No, I didn't really. It wasn't there. But they call them dogs, like packs of wolves and dogs and horrible beings. And yet Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. And, and the Lord allowed them to have this ministry. And in one of the, the commentaries, it says that Paul was just an optimist. You think Paul was just an optimist? Paul always looked on the rosy picture. Are you kidding me? This guy who, was, who had this life, are you thinking that Paul's an optimist? I love Jerry Falwell's definition of an optimist. I heard this one time. I heard Jerry say this in person. Jerry Falwell, before he died, he said this, but many years ago. He said an optimist is an 85-year-old man who marries a 35-year-old woman and buys a 10-bedroom house next to an elementary school. That's an optimist. Ah, Paul's a realist. Paul says, when I come to this point, I'm going to realize that God's going to change lives. He's going to transform people. And as he's standing there speaking in verse 8, all of a sudden this crippled man who's never walked, who's crippled from birth, who, who could not stand up on his own, looks up to Paul, and Paul realizes as he looks into his eyes that something has happened in this man's heart. And Paul calls him out and he says, Stand up! And can you imagine what everybody around this guy is thinking? Oh, Paul, you don't realize this guy's crippled. He can't stand up. Somebody may be thinking as Paul is speaking, oh, poor Paul. I wish somebody had told him what was going on. And then imagine when the man leaps to his feet. And he walks. You think it got quiet in there? Do you think all of a sudden people began to think, oh, oh, something's happened here. This message that Paul has, it must be true. And you notice that Paul had already moved to Lystra by the time this happened. And they wanted to deify him. And God says, no, don't do that. And Paul says, don't do that. I wonder if it made Paul remember another crippled man. I, I love the story in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 9, 1. There was another crippled man. David asks, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And David and Jonathan were best of friends. And, and before Jonathan died, David said, I will find anyone who's left in the kingdom, anyone who's a part of your family. I will show them kindness. And after David becomes the king, he thinks of that and remembers it. And he calls in his servants. He said, is there anyone left? And the servant says, well, we hear there's a story about Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is, is this little one who was of Saul's family, of Jonathan's family. But as the nurse was taking him and, and leaving with him, she dropped him. And he's been paralyzed, apparently, from the waist down. He cannot walk. He's a cripple. And David says, go get Mephibosheth. And, and he brings him in there. And Mephibosheth, every, every other member of Saul's family, as far as we know, has been killed, has been executed. And, and as he comes in, you know what he's thinking. Oh, no, here it goes. I'm dead. And 
David says, Mephibosheth, I swore an oath to your father, to your family, and you will have some of the royal territory. And Mephibosheth, every time I eat, I want you to be at my table. I want you to sit close to me so we can talk. And Mephibosheth, because you can't work the land, I'm going to give you somebody that will work the land and you'll get the, the, the end of that. You're going to get all of the harvest from that. Mephibosheth, I, I want you to have access anytime you need me. You come see me. Do you understand what the picture of Mephibosheth is? I am Mephibosheth. I'm crippled. I was marred from birth with sin. And the Lord brings us in and he says, I want you to have privilege and I want you to have provision and I want you to have grace. I want to, to, to have this. And every time that David sat down to eat and you could hear those crutches and you could hear the click and, the, and then the dragging of the feet and the click and the dragging of the feet and Mephibosheth comes in to sit at David's table, maybe Paul who knew the Old Testament so well, maybe as he saw this crippled man, he thought, maybe there's one more that needs to show the favor of God, that needs to show the kindness of God. Do I have the courage to speak for Christ? Here's the second part. Can I, how can I have the courage to stay strong? How can I have the courage to stay strong? Acts 14, verses 19 through 28. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. The same crowd that wanted to deify him, look at what happens. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The same place that he was stoned is where he went back. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And after going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia. And then when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. From Attilia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them. How he had opened the door of, the faith, of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Again, breaking it down. How can I have the courage? Number one, ask for strength. Ask for strength. The key here is that there was a huge amount of prayer and fasting. Before Paul and Barnabas went out, there was prayer and fasting. When Paul and Barnabas were out there meeting with the church leaders, there was prayer and fasting. It's all about prayer. You understand how powerful this is? They thought Paul was dead. In fact, the word thinking him dead, nomitso, literally means to deduce from evidence. It wasn't just that they saw him there. And can you imagine, these stones were the size of a man's fist and bigger. And when they hit, the, the bruises and the bleeding and the, and, and the cracking sound as they hit his head, they always aimed for the head because they thought they could kill the person faster. 
And then after that, just as a sign, they would pound as many of them into their heart as they possibly could to make sure they'd finished it. These people knew how to stone someone, and, and as they stood around Paul, from the evidence, it appeared that he's dead. And Paul stood. How can that be? It doesn't say the disciples grabbed him and picked him up. It says that he stood and that he walked back into the city. And the next day he walks to Derby. It's 33.2 miles from here to Red Bluff. If you had been beaten severely to the point of death, could you the next morning get up and walk from here to Red Bluff? It's about the same terrain. That's courage. And again, what impact would that have had on those that were surrounding the disciples, the believers who have believed from this message? What impact did that have on them? Was Paul some kind of superhuman? Actually, we have a description of Paul that comes from an ancient place where someone is said to have seen him, and they said he was very short of stature, he was bow-legged, that he had a big nose, and that he had misshapen head. Well, yeah, if you get stoned by rocks, you do have a misshapen head. He's not a superhuman, but he asked God for strength. He, he regularly came. On Monday morning, we have some ladies that come, and they sit right down here in the front. Every Monday morning at 9 o'clock, they, they're praying for this church, and they're praying for revival, and they're praying for the hearts of the people that they love. They're coming right here. These women are praying every week, and God is moving in this church. And we have others who pray other times. But do you understand? It's all about prayer. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. We are hard pressed on every side. Paul writes this, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down. That's a reference, I believe, to what happened in Lystra. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. There are people around the world today who are saying the church in America is dead. It's dying. They have no more power. I'm telling you what, we are struck down. We are not destroyed. God wants to use us in a powerful way. Ask for strength. Number two, focus on others. It says they strengthen the disciples. It's a technical term for systematically building. At Lystra, Paul met this family who changed the course of his life. It was a grandmother, Eunice, and a mother, Lois, and their, and their grandson, their son, his name was Timothy. And as Paul is lying there on the ground, was there a young man looking down in the face and, and of that man and wondering if, if the man was going to stand up, wondering if the man's story was really true? Was that Timothy, some teenager, who was standing there looking at Paul, and all of a sudden the eyes come open, and Paul stands. You say, Pastor, you're just being dramatic. Really? 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 11, he says to Timothy, My son Timothy, you remember what happened to Iconia and Derbe and Lystra? Timothy, you remember? You saw what happened. Fight the good fight. Run the race. And Paul began to pour his life and other people. It's a word picture of a coach totally invested in the outcome of, of what he's coaching. I, I'm not thinking sports here. I'm thinking of birthing coaches. 
It's, it's a term that's used of midwives. It's a term of used of, of one who is there, but especially of the father who's there to deliver that baby and knowing that if his hands are not there, knowing if he doesn't do the thing, he may lose his, his wife or his child. And so he's there intimately involved in the birthing of a new life. 2 Timothy 1.6 says, For this reason... I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. He's writing to Timothy, through the laying on of my hands. And the next verse says, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, of fear, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. The way that we learn the courage and to stay strong is to begin to focus on others. And the third one is to give God the glory. From beginning to the end, it's all about what God did. Paul comes back and he says, they gave the, the, the account in verse 27. They gathered the church together and reported all that God had done. Yeah, it's through them, but God did it. And Paul begins to, to state this. Do you understand what that means? Do you understand what it means to begin to give God the glory? We're so quick to say, oh, look what I did. Look at, look at the part that I played. You know, God couldn't have done this without me. You know, it's, it's all about what I'm doing. Is that really what it is? I love the story of David and Goliath. David stands before Goliath, the 17-year-old teenager. And when he tries on Saul's armor, it's so big that he says he can't even walk in it. Saul was head and shoulders above others, but David evidently was not that big of a, of a young man. And he can't wear Saul's armor, so he goes out in shepherd's clothes. He goes out with a slingshot, with, with, with a pouch of leather and two leather thongs that are, that are tied to the end of it. And he puts this rock in there, and he begins to swing it over his head. And he lets one of the, the, the leather bands go, and, and that rock goes flying. But before any of that happens... Goliath says, did you send me a dog? What am I? You sent a child? You sent a baby? Are you kidding me? This guy's over eight feet tall. This guy is just huge. And what does David say to him? All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of it into our hands. He goes on to say, Goliath, you're going to be dead today, and I'm going to cut off your head, and I'm going to cut off the head of everyone who supports you from your nation. Goliath, do you understand this is going to be the biggest route, the biggest decimation of this nation that you've ever known. You have messed with the wrong person, not with David. You've messed with God. And when we begin to look at it this way, how can we keep silent? How can we not live the life that God has called us to live? How can we not make a difference in Redding? How can we not make a difference in Shasta County? How can we not make a difference in California? How can this little church right here not make a difference around the world? God has called us to his bidding, to his job, to his task. Winston Churchill, at one point when, Israel, when, when England desperately needed to hear from him said this, it is not the critic who counts, 
It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotions, and spins himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold, timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. My question is, are you in the arena? Is your face marred with dust and sweat and blood and tears because God has told us to go? Let's pray. Father, what an amazing God you are. You didn't just call us and give us a task without empowering us. You didn't just dangle this carrot out in front. You provided for it. And by grace, Father, you took us who have no purpose, no reason, no logical way of getting to you, and you brought us home. So that we can live even right now in your power, in your glory, in your majesty, doing those things you've called us to do. And the truth is, Father, we don't get it. We remain quiet, and we're timid and cold souls who've never dared to live for the King. May we dare today to live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name.